Hello, thank you for tuning in today to our podcast. I am Alicia Swamy. I'm here with Keely Severson and Eric Johnson, and we are Exposing Mold. Today we have Dr. Jerome Naragu from the University of Michigan's School of Public Health. He's currently an emeritus professor for the Department of Environmental Health Sciences and a research professor for the Center of Human Growth and Development. Professor Naragu's research and teaching programs center around three main issues. Number one, sources, behavior, fate, and effects of metals in the natural and contaminated environments. Number two, environmental justice and disproportionate exposure of communities to environmental pollutants. And three, environmental health problems in the developing countries. His work includes applied laboratory and field studies and has led to 30 books that he's authored and edited. He was listed as one of the most cited scientists in the field of environmental studies and ecology. He has served as the director of the Environmental Health Program from 1996 to 2006 and has been an active member in a number of community-based organizations. Professor Naragu is the editor-in-chief of one of the leading environmental science journals, Science of the Total Environment, editor-in-chief of Encyclopedia of Environmental Health, and editor of the book series published by Wiley InterScience, Elsevier Science, and Merlet Publishers. Professor Naragu was awarded the first meritorious Doctor of Science degree by the University of Ibadan in Nigeria. He is also a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. His other awards include Senior Fulbright Fellowship and Distinguished Alexander von Humboldt Research Prize. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, The Mold Medic, and All-American Restoration. The first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today. You and many others like you could be suffering from exposure to molds and mycotoxins where you live or where you work. This podcast is brought to you by MyMycoLab. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Have you gone from doctor to doctor, had lots of tests, tried many supplements, medications, vitamins, and still feel awful? You and many others like you could be suffering from exposure to molds and mycotoxins where you live or where you work. My MycoLab is the only blood test available that tests immune system reactivity to mycotoxins. Visit MyMycoLab.com to order your test today. He has studied extensively, extensively, I can't even fathom how much he's worked on studying heavy metal pollution throughout history in America and in other countries and how that affects health. This is what we're going to be covering today and we'd love to hear more Dr. Naragu. Thank you again for joining us. We'd love to hear more about the history of just heavy metal accumulation and and what we've done to kind of increase that because there's a natural cycle and then there's also what we've done with the industrial revolution. So maybe you can just walk us through that. 
Right. So the history of uh, metal pollution goes back to God knows when, time immemorial, when human beings lit fire. So they release uh, smoke into the uh, air. In many cases, the smoke, the aerosols, contain small amounts of lead, depending on where they were. So if they, started, they burnt uh, some plants or grass grown in lead-rich soils, you could, in fact, end up uh, getting significant amounts of lead into the local atmosphere. But that's a long time ago. Then human beings discovered metals, right? So they had to find out or figure out how to mine, smelt, and use all types of metals, heavy metals. And so the one I worked on was lead. The evidence we have suggests that the first use of lead was probably around uh, 8,000 years before Christ, 10,000 years ago, roughly. And since that time, of course, human beings have learned how to mine, smelt, and use lead in an ever-increasing quantity. To the extent that by the Roman times, the human population were mining and smell, were producing well over 100,000 tons of lead per year. And they found out all types of ways of putting the use into practice and into commercial goods and so on. A good example, of course, is the lead pipe discovered by the Romans, the first industrial manufacturing initiative of venture in human history. So they could produce pipes with very clear sizes and dimensions. Again, you know what that could have happened because the Romans were also noted for their aqueducts and their hydraulic ingenuity, the way they could provide water to the city of Rome. And most of that was conveyed, the water was conveyed using lead pipe. And there are, in fact, some studies that suggest that the Romans, especially uh, the Romans to a large extent, experienced very significant, large numbers of the Romans had lead poisoning to the extent that there's a suggestion or hypothesis that lead poisoning contributed to the decline of the Roman Empire. I doubled into that study and I came up with even more serious exposure routes. The one that fascinated me was the exposure through the drinking of different types of wines, right? I came out with a suggestion or the uh, idea that the Roman wine was contaminated in 14 different ways. (laughs) I'm not going to go into all those, but the upshot of it that if you were a Roman aristocrat and you were drinking the the local wine of the time, chances were that you probably had lead poisoning or at least very high levels of lead in your blood or your system, body. How do we know that? We you know that a lot of the lead in the human body is stored in the bones. So we let the uh, ancient Romans speak to us by collecting their bones and analyzing for lead. And well, what do we find? Very high levels of lead in their bones, which will suggest, in fact, clearly suggest that many of them had lead poisoning. Okay, so that's uh, to the Roman times. And then as we came back to, well, if we quickly then go to the uh, medieval times, we again found high incidence of lead in uh, lead burdenings. The uh, aristocrats of the, the blue bloods of Europe. Again, the suggestion has been made that a lot of these kings and queens of Europe during the medieval time, Middle Ages, actually had serious problems with lead poisoning. Okay, so I start with lead. We also did some work on uh, arsenic and so on. And I think lead was the one I worked a lot on.
Wow. Yeah. I, um, going through your papers, I was really surprised to see that. And we're at a different population size, right? And we're, okay. we're, we're at a different level of the industrial revolution, I guess you can say. We're in the technological revolution. Right. And, you know, with, with every industry, every new invention, everything that comes out, it, it's a new form of pulling from the earth, pulling out the resources, distributing it, and then eventually that goes all into landfill, right? We're kind of this, this uh, disposable um, economy society where we buy things, we throw it out as, as quick as we buy them. Now, what impact is that making on the biosphere in, in modern times? The biosphere, even the air pollution, the, uh, yeah, because if you are thinking of the cycling, ecosystem cycling, then the uh, air obviously serves as a very important medium in the transfer of flow of pollution from one area to the other from one uh, ecosystem to the other and so on. So can I back up a little bit? I like the less story, then we get on to the other elements. Sure, sure. This, this, is, is, that, this, uh, this is your show. Okay. The uh, WHO last month, or this month, celebrated the sale of the last gallon of leaded gasoline in the world. So they finally, finally stopped manufacturing lead additives for gasoline. So for the, from 1923 until this year, the world actually ran on leaded gasoline, as you probably know, sorry, many parts of the world ran on leaded gasoline. So I was happy to see in fact, finally it's been uh, put to rest. And in terms of air pollution, from about 1923 until 1975 or so, when they banned lead in gasoline, the most significant and the most toxin of concern in the air was lead. Huge numbers of the lead of children, not only in this country, many parts of the world, high levels of lead that should be of significant health concerns. So happily, I think the world has solved the lead in gasoline and the lead in the atmosphere problem. And then we come into these other toxins as well. So it seems like as we take out the lead in the air, we're pumping other types of poisons into the atmosphere as well. So we never seem to learn what goes into the atmosphere eventually comes into human beings. And indeed, in one of my um, questions that I introduced my lectures in environmental pollution is to ask my students, if you want to eat extraterrestrial person and you land, let's say, in New York City, and you only have one animal to analyze to tell you the quality of the atmosphere where you just landed, whether it's safe or not safe. So what animal would be the most logical choice to figure out whether in fact it's a safe environment for the extraterrestrial being to, to land or not land? The answer is a human being. Get the first human being you get, you find, cook him or her up, then you can detect uh, probably thousands of various toxins in the air, which will be obviously give you a very good indication of the quality of the environment or the atmosphere that we just landed in. That's just interesting. I definitely agree. And you know what? You brought up a really interesting point. You talked about lead exposure in the air. Now, when we think of lead exposure in the United States, we've been seeing it more like being poisoned in water or lead paint. The inhalational aspect of it isn't quite emphasized as much as it being like in the water source, for example. So I, I really like that you brought that up. It seems that inhalational you know, is 
as much as a problem as everything else, whether drinking, whether dermal exposure. And so that's why I wanted to kind of put an emphasis on the, the inhalational part and how that can affect someone as much as consuming you know, a, to a toxin or heavy metal. Yeah, that uh, was before the uh, removal of lead from gasoline. So since that time, of course, the level of lead in the air has dropped quite drastically, very, very low, in fact, unless you live near smelters or incinerators. But for the general population, since about 19, from about 1975 onwards, the level of lead has dropped to the point now where I don't think it's of course, it should be of concern. But that didn't happen in many, many developing countries. It's only recently when they stopped making lead gasoline that we can say now, the lead we can then forget or start worrying about lead in air in any part of the world. Fantastic. Yeah, I went and looked at your paper that you wrote on global metal pollution, mm -hmm. and you had a table that was really interesting. This paper was done in 1990, where you did a comparison of worldwide emissions of trace metals from natural sources um, mm -hmm. into the atmosphere, and you listed windborne soil particles, sea salt spray, volcanoes, forest fires, biogenic sources, and then you have another table that discusses the atmospheric emissions of trace metals from anthropogenic sources. And so you list energy production, mining, smelting and refining, the manufacturing process, commercial uses, waste incineration and transportation. Now, there's a lot of different elements that are of concern, right? For me, looking at this chart, lead, you know, is obviously screaming at me, um, but also like zinc and arsenic. Um, could you talk a little bit more about those other elements too? Those, um, should uh, how do I frame it? We have the lead that is of no use to the body, right? The body has no need or use for lead. On the other hand, we require zinc and copper. Okay, so when you inhale zinc or copper, the metal itself may not be too bad. It's probably what we need. A lot of people are deficient in zinc as in many countries. But what the problem is that we are taking the uh, meddling in a particulate form and it's the particle then that creates the problem. Not the metal itself that in fact is the physical form of the particle that can create respiratory problems. But the metal itself, I don't think you get enough metal through inhalation, enough copper or zinc or iron, or copper and iron primarily to represent a risk of health. Right. Fantastic. I know Eric, I, he's, a, he's a big believer in the particles causing a lot of issues. I'm going to have him jump in here and ask you some questions. Yeah, I uh, thought that the human health effects of particulate pollution really took off during the Industrial Revolution yeah. with the advent of modern warfare and heavy industry when we really saturated the atmosphere with all these particulates. Can you tell us a little bit more about the health effects from the Industrial Revolution? Right. I can talk about some of the work that I think we did a little of that. Uh, the record we have that has documented exactly what you are saying, that a lot of the uh, trace metals released into the atmosphere in the northern hemisphere would end up in the Arctic zone. So you can actually follow the history of atmospheric air pollution in the northern hemisphere by analyzing ice cores, right? 
that are analyzing high schools taken from various parts of the northern Arctic region. And when they do that, they find exactly what you are saying that the levels uh, took off from around was 1700 and uh, towards the end of the 18th century. And for many of these toxins, the levels keep has continued to go up. For some of them, oh, we are seeing very significant reductions in the levels in the Arctic snow, snow fields. Good example is lead and many of these uh, trace elements. In general, in fact, for most of trace elements now, we see reductions in the most recent snow layers which can be linked to the uh, removal of the various recent guidelines that require the installation of these uh, particulate removers in many of these industrial operations. So again, this is a good suggestion, good omen, that some of the technological interventions seem to be working. Is that what uh, you see yeah, in the literature? That's, that's uh, part of it. But we're trying to link this atmospheric pollution to the history of health effects, and in particular, the history of neurasthenia, the uh, neuroinflammatory disease described by New York neurologist George Beard in 1868, which okay. really kicked off a host of similar related neurological syndromes that right. defy explanation, but seem to roughly correlate with its atmospheric metallic pollution. Well, metallic pollution, I through the air though, I mean, it's going to be difficult to uh, separate out the exposure through the atmospheric route versus exposure through, through diets and water and so on. Because now the primary exposure rise for me, most of these metals now, for most of the metals are through water and foods rather than through inhalation. So I don't know if they've been able to differentiate or distinguish between the actual source of the metals that they're associating with the particular syndrome. You mentioned that the pathogenesis of the particulates varies by their, their size, by how they're manufactured. Can you tell us a little bit about um, nanoparticle surface energy and how that affects the body? This is not really a topic I worked on, sorry, I, I really haven't done anything with nanoparticles at all. Has there been um, work that specifically correlates disease with areas of high particulate or metallic production, such as you mentioned around smelters or cement manufacturing or areas of heavy industry? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the industrial hygiene as a science began, in fact, from the study of these people who live near major points of sources of pollution, right? So there are many parts, many countries, places in the U.S. that used to smelt huge quantities of lead, copper, and all these heavy uh, base metals without any control of the air pollution, air pollutants. And in those days, a lot of people who lived in the area were, in fact, known to be suffering from all types of health effects. And this, unfortunately, is what we are seeing in many developing countries as a result of the, what they call now the export of poisons, where a lot of these industries that cannot be established in the developing countries because of their pollution control requirements are now exported or uh, sent to the developing countries. And indeed, I've been involved in some of the cases. I know there was one 
company that wanted to set up a chrome a chromium smelting plant in one community one native community in Canada, and I was asked to be an expert for the community where we fought it, and finally they decided to help with your regulation on you guys. They moved this trade to a Caribbean country with no modifications, nothing, no control, no pollution control. And so this is what many of these companies are doing, I used to do and probably still do, instead of putting the money or spending money to control air emissions, they send it to uh, the developing countries. And what was the justification for the Caribbean country accepting this highly dangerous fact industry? Because according to them, the air is so clean, a little bit of pollution will not harm anybody. That I thought was being careless and being very reckless, very unfair. Here we've got some of the most pristine air left on the planet, so we should go there and pollute that. Right, yeah, put a little pollution there, a little smoke is good for the country, right? Or for the people, right? So, so just as the uh, Romans may have contributed to the fall of their empire by the introduction of, of or the heavy use of lead, how do you feel about our modern use of aluminum? Again, I haven't really done any tender study on uh, aluminum. I know, I know I've seen some studies that we're using aluminum in practically everything we do, right? And so we think that if uh, we, are, we are being exposed to, uh, to aluminum through, through various uh, empty number of pathways, and then what will be the overall consequences? Well, I was thinking that since aluminum is notorious as a um, vaccine adjuvant, right. it's a very potent activator of cytokines, right. that if we inhale nano-sized aluminum, how can it not be acting like a vaccine adjuvant? That, that's if it gets uh, taken in, right? It has absorption. I don't know what percentage of the uh, aluminum that is inhaled Again, depending on the particle side, that ultimately gets into the body. So again, I don't, I don't really know the actual pharmacokinetics of aluminum through the lungs vessels when you inject it directly into the bloodstream. So they're entirely different. The situation may be different. At the very least, it seems that if we analyze this from the historical point of view, that if we look at when the introduction of certain alloys occurred, we might just be able to work out a a vague pattern of when human health effects also started to emerge. That, that's true. And again, I, acting as a devil's advocate. So if you go back to, let's say, the uh, medieval ancient times, the diagnosis will be a problem, right? How do we know that, the, uh, that the, what we are talking about, the disease we are seeing now is the same thing, exactly what the other doctors we are describing. Again, we need to be careful how we extrapolate backwards into historical records. I understand the need for caution, but right. how do we set an investigation in, in motion? What sort of evidence is required to establish some kind of connection that's sufficiently strong that this ought to be pursued? Again, uh, for lead is uh, different because the uh, symptoms are very, very clear. Another one is you can have the record. We have a record in the bones. So if you look at the uh, ancient Roman authors, 
they talked about gout. If you have gout, any doctor and those there who knew what gout was. And so for me, it was easy to simply go through these aristocrats and see which of them had gout. And so gout was quite very fairly diagnostic for lead poisoning. And some of the diseases you're talking about, I'm not sure how have, have these unique symptoms that you can use to diagnose, to tell whether people in the past had, had the, the particular disease. So. Yeah, I recall reading, reading that um, cherries were believed to be a potent detoxifier for lead and that uh, people with gout would just consume cherries by the basket load. It was exactly what got given them lead poisoning. <laughs> that was given, what gave them lead poisoning. We got yeah. about the drinking the sherry that was contaminated with lead in the first instance. And then they were using all these, uh, storing them with all these uh, lead prime metal containers that were repaired with lead and so on. So, What uh, got my in- attention going into particulate pollution was that I'm a survivor of a large cluster of mystery illness, and about the only environmental factor that had significantly changed was we were being absolutely drenched with silver iodide nanoparticles, Mm. cloud seeding. Mm. And no environmental impact was required because the people who were conducting this operation said that we had no evidence that cloud seeding was ever connected to any kind of known illness or environmental alteration. I looked into the patent for cloud seeding, and the inventor said that while no significant microbial alteration in the soils was noted by a few initial applications, that due to the nature of the material itself, the alloy, the the metals, that repeated applications couldn't help but result eventually in some kind of significant noticeable damage to the environment. Oh, wow. That's... That's interesting. I, I, I was, I was I'm not aware of the, of the study. Yeah. But this seemed to me perfectly in line with the concept that metallic atmospheric pollution, even though it might not result in any kind of noticeable damage right away, that if we keep doing it, eventually some kind of alteration, some kind of damage has to show up. It's just inevitable. Yeah, definitely. Especially if it accumulates. Uh, silver, I suspect, will probably, will not be mobile in soils. You can look at soils, for instance, and that will give you some indication of recent uh, atmospheric deposition, or deposition from the atmosphere. Has that been done, for instance? Has anybody, did they do that to give you some indication of the uh, loading? Uh, no, they haven't. Uh, to the soil. Um, there is an institute that's supposed to be monitoring this, the Desert Research Institute at the University of Nevada, Reno. And I've tried to get access to their, their data, but so far they haven't been very forthcoming on what kind of results from this systemic application of nanoparticles has occurred over the years. Right, yeah. Silver would be, uh, the soil would be a good uh, biomonitor for the atmospherically deposited silver. Uh, it's not, it shouldn't be, it's not mobile. It is, in fact, not mobile at all in soils. Yeah, we talked to a uh, nanoparticle researcher, Dr. Antonietta Gotti. Yeah. And she's uh, brought up the concept that titanium dioxide is particularly problematic. Yeah. Have you done any study on that? Uh, no, I, 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 personally, 
No, I seen some studies, but again, I haven't done any of the any work on titanium myself. Well, in reading about the ancient Romans, they were very much aware that these materials, the lead, was hazardous, and I understand they used slaves to do their smelting and do the um, joints for their copper pipes because the uh, they knew that they didn't have a very long lifespan working in that profession. So they actually made an observation. This lead was harmful and knew that the upper classes could should try to avoid it in some way. Yes. So it looks like this is how observations eventually result in some kind of study right. that we see a correlation of illness to a profession working with right. these materials and proceed from there. Yes. Uh, that is true. That, that is exactly true. Except that where nowadays the exposure is not just occurring in the amongst the workers, right? It's no longer occupational. It's environmental. So we're exposing everybody. And I just remember in those days, the slaves were probably healthy and strong, right? Normally you buy strong, healthy slaves. Whereas now we're exposing people who have all types of pre-existing uh, pre conditions that can mediate the toxicity of whatever they're being exposed to. We so, just had a fascinating conversation with a retired professor from the Environmental Protection Agency, Dr. Lewis, who said that he studied areas in Africa right. where no life existed, where no plants, nothing could grow. Right. He was so intrigued by this that he actually went and studied and found low, fairly low concentrations of these these metals. In fact, too low that they were officially by themselves considered to be toxic, but that the sum total of all this kind of pollution had accumulated in the soils to the extent that it eradicated all plant life. Yes, we do know synergistic effects of trace metals that can that definitely can happen. Synergistic effects, yes, can happen. I know of is the uh, if you have a very high zinc, it will replace copper in the human cells, human body, and you can end up with copper toxicity. So, if the same thing happens, and we know that suddenly copper is much more toxic to plants than zinc. So, again, if you have an area with high levels of zinc, even if, the, even if copper is not as high, you can still end up with with uh, copper toxicity, especially in plants, even though the levels may be low. Years ago, I saw a picture of the Black Forest in Germany, where uh, the um, acid rain from the uh, industry, the heavy industry, had floated through the atmosphere, was being condensed in the um, in the clouds, and precipitated so precisely on a on a forest that the mountaintops, all the trees at the very tops of the mountains were dead, whereas the trees further down still looked healthy. So yes. we know that atmospheric actions, clouds, can collect and condense and precipitate these pollutants so precisely that unexpected areas can crop up that you would never believe that anything bad could happen here. And yet, thanks to the action of clouds and the shapes of mountains, and how the, the rain collects and condenses these materials, that it can show up in the most amazing places. That's a very, very good example, which again is 
something some of us worry about when we look at the modeling of the global distribution of the uh, of uh, air pollutants um, that in fact they don't always take such issues into account right and so nowadays when you do your risk assessment is based on models of the uniform transportation transport across terrain when you do that it doesn't quite get at people who are in fact who live in the kind of area you're talking about an area where you have this uh, unusual deposition or accumulation in the environment so again this is something that becomes an issue when people start extrapolating especially from models into the two estimating what the risks are so that's an, an interesting point i've been wondering if we could analyze this distribution by looking at tree rings because they're a very good long-term record of atmospheric pollution how it's going to affect the soil the uh, bacteria around the roots whether they're stressed or not I think the trees that they're not just a good indicator for drought, but for atmospheric pollution as well. Yes, uh, this this had been done since the 1970s. I was the editor of a journal, and I, I remember I, we published a lot of papers in the 1970s on exactly this dendrochronometry, where we use our tree rings to date as well as monitor the historical changes in ambient air quality. Yes, this has been done. And we have a lot of database, in fact, on that, on the use of trees to monitor previous uh, levels of toxic heavy metals, especially in the environment, yes, in the atmosphere, sorry. Yeah, with the uh, wildfires going on in California right now, people have never seen fires grow so quickly and be so devastating. The trees were much more resistant. A lot of this is being attributed to drought, but I'm wondering how much of this might be due to the sickness of the trees, how they're being affected by this atmospheric pollution. But is that possible? Is entirely like is entirely possible that that can happen? That the uh, trees, at least some species, are more sensitive to toxic metals. And therefore, we may in fact be reaching levels or have reached levels where they are actually become their growth and health may in fact be impacted by the levels of toxic metals in their in their in this environment. Yeah, in their environment. So it's an entirely likely scenario. I completely agree. And the other thing that um, we've been wondering about is the use of chloramine in water to purify the water, the chlorine basically to make it uh, safe for drinking, its effect on copper pipes, because we know that copper pipes degrade much faster when you apply this chloramine, to the extent that it's amazing we build these houses where you expect a house to last for 50, 100 years or more, and yet the lifespan of copper pipes is rated at 10 to 15 years at most before you can expect that they'll start developing leaks due to the chloramine. But how is this going to affect our health? Oh, wow. that's, uh, I would just did a research study on exactly that topic. We know that Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the Middle East, they don't have any fresh water, right? So most of the water they get is through desalination. So now if you go to the, uh, while I was in Qatar, they claim to have the cleanest, purest water in the world. What is it? 
distilled water. That's what it was. They are, they are calling uh, the PRS water. It was, of course. But then, if you look at if you look at the water, then you find, in fact, significant or high levels of these toxic metals like lead and copper and zinc and so on. Not only the dissolved form, but in the colloidal form. And what they do then, they have these uh, put in these. Uh, everybody is required to put in a filter which they never change. <laughs> and so you have this accumulation of crud with high levels of heavy metals. And occasionally, when somebody is doing, trying to repair the piping, he mark up or stir up most of these toxic metals, and it gets into people drinking water. And so you have this accumulation of toxins in the water pipe. So again, what you are saying is, correct that very very pure water is highly corrosive and will in fact result in significant dissolution of metals from piping into the drinking water and people have to be very very careful in terms of the metal levels in their water so that's again is a problem people who use filter also have to be very careful that they change the filters on a regular basis otherwise the filter will just act as an accumulator of toxins, uh, which will eventually will start to be released into the water. And another example we came across is the Flint water crisis. And the problem there is not limited to Flint. It's uh, practically most municipalities in this country that when they have high levels of lead or significant amounts of lead in the drinking water, they treat the water by adding zinc, zinc phosphate. That's the standard treatment, recommended even by the EPA, or used to be. This does not take the lead out of the water. It converts the dissolved lead into particulate lead. And so what you now have is particulate lead in the tap water. And so when you have what people now, if you have any filter, which is what they recommend, then the particular lead builds up in the filter. The homeowner or the tenant doesn't change the filter on a regular basis. After a while, the accumulated particular lead gets flushed into the tap water, and that still creates even more of a problem. Again, the way they treat the lead in our water is really not a treatment at all. The lead is not being removed. They are converting the lead from one form to the other, and the lead is still in the water. And ultimately, we can still, still represent some type of a hazard. Basically, we would have to use a lot of uh, activated charcoal or zeolite filters and change them frequently. Yes, if you must use filter, that's correct. Be careful too. Uh, activated charcoal may, may not be quite what you need because the, the uh, pore size is too big. I will not trap all the particular lead in the water. The micro so pore size is about one micron. And the particular so basically, particle we're, we're down to reverse osmosis. Ideally. Wow. Ideally. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's, a, that's an expensive option, option, but it seems like nothing else works. Depends on the level of risk, I guess. I mean, what's the ideal solution, I guess? In this country, it's a matter of risk-benefit. Our legislation, most of our programs, legislation, is based on risk-benefit analysis. And now they add even cost-benefit analysis. So these are issues that we can never get away from. This is quite interesting. You know, when I moved into my home 
in Oregon, I asked to see a report of the city water. I wanted to see what the contaminants and what was in it. So it, it makes me it makes me feel like those reports don't even matter if it's going to go through the municipal filtration, but then it's going to become toxified once it goes through my piping and comes out of my you know my faucet. So I almost feel like this is such a huge public health issue that maybe we should just be standardizing reverse osmosis filters in every home across America, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That would be uh, the, uh, the best solution, right? I wonder how right. we can leverage that. Do you think you can help us? Who can we talk to to get that going? Get me scientists, environmental health scientists. So. Well, thank you so much for, for chatting with us. And I just wanted to kind of go towards the health aspect back to it. And you wrote an amazing paper called The Silent Epidemic of Environmental Metal Poisoning. And you made a statement in this paper that I wanted to just share with our audience. And I wanted to talk about it. So what you said was no one is sure what margin of safety still exists for the large number of susceptible individuals being subjected to undue trace metal insults. Metal-induced immunosuppression often occurs at low doses, which elicit no evident toxicity in the organism. In the absence of hard scientific data, one can only speculate on the possible role of trace metals in the increasing number of people who are reportedly coming down with allergies, colds, and other viral infections. Immunosuppressive metals can also enhance the activity of other environmental carcinogens or their metabolic derivatives. Now, when I read this, I was thinking of the chicken or the egg approach, right? right. Um, throughout history, the virologists have been taking over, right? Kind of right. attributing everything to viruses. So right. now when I read that statement, it makes me think, what came first? The viruses or the toxic metal pollutions that are accumulating in the environment, setting off the immune system to lower its defenses, and then we get these viruses, we get sick. And I just wanted to know your opinion on that. I recently edited a book on heavy metals and infection. So the war you are talking about has been going on for a long, long time. The viruses themselves need metals. They can't survive. They can't live without metals. And where do they get the metals from us? This fight between viruses, the post-pathogen fighting has been going on since God knows millions of years ago. Yeah, sorry. Remind me of the question again. I'm just thinking about uh, what you recently did. Yeah, yeah I, I was just thinking about the chicken or the egg approach because in right. your um, in your paper you mentioned that these low-level toxic exposures through time can cause the immune system to lower its defenses, leaving it more susceptible to allergies, colds, viral infections, cancer, cardiovascular mm. issues, etc. Mm. And so basically what I wanted to know was, are the viruses the cause of things or are we missing a major component? And that is the toxic soup of pollution that we all surround ourselves in that you had mentioned earlier. Everyone is susceptible now to this. And also virus are utilizing heavy metals or trace metals to survive, maybe we should start implementing a national heavy metal detoxification program in order to combat these infections and viruses and cancers. And I just wanted to know your opinion on that. Yes and no. Yes, if you are talking about uh, pathogens, those that uh, harm human beings, but we also have a lot of the beneficial microorganisms. In fact, our body is filled with these microorganisms and most of them are good for us, right? We can't digest the food we eat without microorganisms. 
we have huge microbiomes and you know everywhere in our bodies and these are good stuff and so we can try to get rid and these microorganisms all require essential heavy metals so if you get rid of all the heavy metals then we get rid of the organisms then it means our health will, we will not be the same at all it's a fight that has to be targeted you need to focus on uh, you know some of these viruses like coronavirus that is no good for us while safeguarding or maintaining a lot of these microorganisms that are very good for us we need the what i call a healthy microbiome i agree i think i think there's like a we need to meet like an equilibrium right Right. too much is harmful and too little is not good enough and so we need to find this balance this equilibrium but no one's having these type of conversations in the media you will never see a conversation about viruses and how heavy metals are interacting with them and so you brought up just a great point and you know i just really want to capitalize off that because there was a study that i recently saw about povidine iodine being utilized as a nasal spray to reduce the viral load in the nose and i almost feel like because iodine has the ability to detoxify heavy metals in the body if that is the mechanism of action i don't expect you to know this i'm just bringing this up but i'm just wondering if that is the mechanism of action that's happening reducing maybe the heavy metal accumulation in the nose because we're inhaling every day right through our nose through our mouth and maybe that's having some effect of clearing that out to to reduce the viral loads i'm not sure my my hunch is probably not because whatever you inhale is in particulate form most of the metals you inhale will be, will be in the form of aerosol particulate form and i'm not sure that spraying iodine will dissolve or may be able to dissolve the uh, metals then in particulate form. I'm not sure that the nose will be a good reaction chamber. It's not even, I'm not even sure whether you want it because the side reactions may lead to unwanted consequences. That just came to mind. I, I wanted right. to throw that out there. But um, right. now I wanted to go more towards a solution-based uh, conversation. Sure. Now, you did sure. a study on Arab Americans in Detroit, and you were able to analyze heavy metal toxicity exposure throughout their life through their toenails, right? You you use some sort of technology, spectrometry, I believe, to analyze that. Now, if someone, say there's a patient that is concerned and that wants to look more into this, what can they do to get tested? And are there any treatments that you're aware of where they can actually try to bring their body back to equilibrium with the exposures of heavy metals? Right, Uh, the toenail we found is a good measure of the exposure that a person has experienced during the past few years, because that's how it takes, uh, as long as it takes the toner to grow to the point where we can cut off what we need. And it gives you an aggregate measure. It's not just what you're exposed to through the air or water or food, but it gives you an integrated measure of exposure. So it's good if you want to know how much Trace metals have you been exposed where you live and from according to your lifestyle. That will give you that. If it's high, then you need to then figure out what you need to change. Are that through your lifestyle in terms of what you eat or where you play, or else you may want to change 
you know, your residence, you know, the place where you live. So again, it can be very, at least a, give you a good suggestion in terms of whether you are being exposed to unhealthy, what it may be called unhealthy doses of exposure to any particular metal. You cannot get that, for instance, by monitoring blood or urine or whatever. No, it's a good bioindicator, biomonitor of exposure. It cannot give you uh, exposure for, uh, during the past decade. I don't think it's uh, an adequate measurement of that. For that, you may have to go to bones. And now people are developing a, a ways of measuring the press metal levels in bones in situ without having to cut people up. So that's an advancement that actually will also be very useful in letting somebody know if in fact uh, you know, they're experiencing any effect from the lab past exposure to heavy metal, toxic metals. So, so bone, nails, and I'm not sure if you mentioned hair. I also have heard of hair analyses. We don't use hair because I remember the sample we did in South, somewhere in Africa, collected hair samples. Then we realized that we were using lead to uh, dye their hair, for instance. And then a lot of shampoos actually contain lead and toxic heavy metals. And so you end up with a lot of contamination. And in addition, as you walk around, then the hair will pick up heavy metals through the air. So again, it becomes difficult to, you know, make sense out of the results of the hair, the levels of heavy metals in here. So. And then do you know of any solutions or is there anything that you do? Now that you know what you know, is there anything that you implement in your life to reduce these exposures? Yes. Don't breathe, don't eat. Huh? <laughs> nah. Again, it's doing things in moderation, okay? And then uh, simply watching the risks or doing your own risk-benefit analysis. I mean, in terms of, for example, foods. Yeah, there are certain foods we know that contain high levels of stress heavy metals. Fish, for instance, can contain high levels of mercury. And you need to be careful the type of fish you buy. Uh, the older the fish, the higher the levels of mercury will likely be. So again, you need to be careful. Tuna, for tuna fish, usually have high levels of mercury. You need to be aware of some of these risks or where the risks are. So that's one thing. And um, the drinking water, again, you need to, I think, uh, having a filter, for instance, changing your filter on a regular basis would add some level of protection in terms of exposure to heavy metals. Seafoods also, not only, I talked about fish, other seafoods like clams and so on things you need to be careful about, you know, do things in moderation. I have a question. I, I thought it was really funny, even though it's not a joke at all, that you said, you know, just don't eat or breathe. <laughs> because sometimes the environmental exposures that sensitive people such as myself react to seem to be that pervasive that they're actually unavoidable. And, you know, you mentioned you mentioned some of the things that we could avoid eating and, you know, maybe a reverse osmosis filter for our water, but I don't really know what we can do for our air. Yeah, well, I feel that's where the government and legislation has to come in. So because have- it's not something you can control. 
in a, in a world where the EPA is firing scientists who tell the truth that they don't want told, how on earth are we going to get any help from any governmental agencies? Because we're living in a day and age where if you're not telling the truth that they want talked about, you're discredited, your funding is pulled, you're not allowed to, to continue your work. And so when that's blockaded off at the governmental level, it seems like a doomsday scenario because we have people who are so environmentally sensitive that they can feel that they're reacting to everything in their environment. And then the governmental agencies and the doctors saying, that's not happening, you don't have science to prove it, you're crazy. And it doesn't seem like we have any chance at this point of getting governmental agencies to recognize what we need. What do you do when the people that you turn to for help have zero intention or interest of ever providing honest help? Kelly, you know, I, I hear you. At the same time, I, you know, I'm a scientist, not a politician, but talking as an old man, I can say that things go around in cycle. And I expect that hopefully in future, we're going to swing back to the government that will encourage or promote environmental programs that will reduce, or the government that will become aware of some of the risks of these environmental contaminants and will in fact come up with programs that will minimize the risks. So let's go around in cycle. We're in one cycle now. Hopefully, we go to we'll get into another cycle that will be more environmentally friendly, and therefore we may be able should be able to address your concerns. I hear you. Thank you so much, Dr. Niagru. I really, I really appreciate that. That does provide some help for people who are hypersensitive. And we will continue to see the ramifications of our pollution if we continue on this road. So hopefully, and it seems like we are switching gears to change things, but again, you're right, it does take time. Um, And so hopefully, (laughs) you know, we catch it in time (laughs) before it does anything like what happened to the Roman Empire. Thank you again for joining us. I hope that you would join us again in the future. Your bulk of work is so extensive. There's so many things I want to chat with you about. So thanks again for, for agreeing to come on. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you, everyone, for joining us today. We had Dr. Jerome Nyagu. He is an environmental chemist and has done extensive, extensive research on heavy metals in the environment and how that affects our environment, how that affects our health, etc. So thank you again, everyone. Please okay. like, share, comment on our content, subscribe to our podcast channel. We're everywhere, so feel free to check us out. Also, contribute to our Patreon and GoFundMe pages to keep this podcast rolling. Thank you again, everyone, and we'll see you next time.